Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, guys, I'm literally phoning in my introduction to this week's podcast because I can't make it to the studio because I'm in Acapulco, not on vacation, uh, doing a story uh, for Nightline, which will air, I think, in the next few weeks. Actually, quite an incredible story. Anyway, that's not what you came here for. Uh, we've got a, a great guest this week who's has some uh, really fascinating theories about the overlap between attachment theory, which is a, a psychological um, idea, and meditation. Uh, George Haas is his name. Before we get to him, I just want to do a few items of business. I can't take calls this week because I'm not in the in the studio, uh, but I do want to mention uh, one thing. This is kind of like a PSA for a previous guest. Uh, if you haven't heard her uh, before, I, I recommend you go back and, and listen to her episode, Jess, Jessica Mori. She goes by Jess. So Jess Mori, she runs a program called I Be Me, sometimes uh, known as Inward Bound Mindfulness Education. Outward Bound is the program where teens go into the woods. Uh, Inward Bound is where teens also go into the woods, but also meditate. It's from Everything I've heard, a great program. And she just wanted me to remind people that if uh, if any parents or teenagers are listening to this, uh, you can go to ibme.info, ibme.info, and there's uh, room for this summer's retreats. Uh, a lot of parents come to me and talk talk to me about the anxiety their, their teenagers are dealing with, and uh, we know it's on the rise. And so this is one thing I think is worth looking into. Okay. So our guest this week, as I mentioned, George Haas is his name. He's a meditation meditation teacher. He lives in L.A. He focuses a lot on attachment theory, which is uh, about uh, the critical role that caregivers play in any person's development. George comes to this from a position of, of pain, really, in his personal life. He had a really rough uh, childhood. He went on to experiment with a lot of different kinds of meditation, um, which he uh, credits with uh, helping uh, get him sober. Uh, so he says it much in a much more interesting way than I do. So I'll shut up and, and, and bring you George Haas. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks for doing this, even though you have a cold. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Uh, let me ask you the, the question I ask everybody, which is how, how did you get into the meditation game? Um, I guess I would say that I was desperate uh, and in pain and wanted something that would help. And uh, I found that doing even a basic concentration practice uh, relieved that immediately. And so I had an advantage uh, uh, or I saw an advantage in, it, in being able to practice. The aforementioned desperation and pain, what was what was that about? I like to say that I had a crappy childhood and that a lot of the legacies of that um, uh, came with me. And so that as I went on to try and get uh, things to happen for me, say in my, my teens and 20s, uh, that differentiation period, there were a lot of obstacles to getting that to happen, mostly relational. I had a lot of opportunities, but because I couldn't manage the relationships, um, the opportunities didn't really grow into much. So when you say crappy childhood, can you tell me a little bit, bit about that? To the extent that you're comfortable, you don't have to share anything you don't want to. Yeah, um, you know, I'm Irish family, a lot of drinking, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, various kinds of abuse. So sounds genuinely crappy. Yeah, no, it was, it's crappy. By anybody's definition. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've read about you that you're interested in attachment theory, and I'm hearing that come through in everything you said up until uh, the last thing you said, which is that um, you had opportunities, but the relationships couldn't blossom because you had stuff on your own end that you needed to deal with. Right. I needed, I was very dissociative coming out of my childhood, and dissociation in intimate relationships doesn't work very well because you're not really there a lot of yeah. the time. Um, and I had the, probably the most extreme outcome of attachment disturbance that you have. Um, I've had my AAI done. Do you know an AAI? No. An adult attachment interview is an assessment tool for what your actual attachment strategy is. And so um, mine 
my outcome from childhood was one of the most disturbed. Really? So keep, keep, before I, you were about to say something, I apologize for interrupting you. Before you go down that whatever road you were about to to go down, can you? There may be some people don't aren't really familiar with attachment theory. Can you just walk us through what that is, and then then get to wherever you were going? Sure. Um, attachment theory was originated by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. Uh, it was John Bowlby's theory. He was an in, English uh, psychiatrist uh, who. Um, one of the things I should tell you is that I can go into incredible detail about these things, so I'm not sure what's appropriate. But um, This is a podcast, man. You can do whatever uh, you want. Right. There's no rules. Um, how familiar are, are you with your uh, psychoanalytic history? Uh, Assume zero, because uh, that's close to the truth. Okay. Um, Freud and Jung were the, the big guys at the end of, uh, of, of uh, or the beginning of the 1900s, and uh, then they moved into a kind of secondary anti-Freud, and uh, um, Melanie Klein was an object relations theorist. All of these were, uh, uh, in a general sense, about how you react to things, not what happens to you. And John Bowlby's interest really was in isn't it what happens to you that affects these outcomes? And if you could track that, uh, then you might be able to understand what kind of behavior, what kind of conditions a child faces and how that uh, affects them and whether they would um, uh, come into uh, a skill set as an adult that was based on actually what happened to them, not on how they, in imagination or fantasy, related to it. Um what he discovered uh, with Mary Ainsworth is three main kinds of attachment. So people who are securely attached uh, to their mothers. It doesn't have to be their mothers, but it often is it, their primary caregiver. It, really what it is, is the relationship between the mother uh, or the primary caregiver and the infant that forms an idea of your own competency to get your needs met, and also what you can expect from the world. So there you are, a child, three months old, you cry out for someone to uh, take care of you, and depending on how they show up, you develop a working model of yourself as capable or incapable of getting your needs met. Mm. And you also develop a working model of what you can expect from the world. So if they show up good enough, you have a sense that I'm confident I can get my needs met and the world is likely to meet my needs. And if they don't do that, then you develop other uh, views. I'm not competent of getting my needs met and the world is likely not to meet them. Or uh, I'm not competent get, to get my needs met, but uh, the world will conditionally respond to me depending on how I perform or the world, I'm not competent of getting my needs met and the world is a dangerous place that I should not engage in because of what can happen. And so were you in that last category there? Yeah. Yeah, so you grew up, was it New York City in which you grew up? No, I grew up in Chicago. Okay, so Chicago, um, a difficult family as a consequence of insufficient uh, or not good enough attachment you end up viewing the world as a hostile place, that well, where you can't get your meat you know, met, I, met. Right. I grew up in an affluent way, but also with a depressed mother um, who, um, you know, a lot of drinking in my family. Those things are very scary for children because they alter the nature of how, a, uh, how your caregiver responds to depending on how much they've had to drink, which you don't really know how to calculate as a child. My mother also tended to be violent and unpredictably violent, and so those things were also scary and hard to manage. Um, so you, we all have the conditioning that we had as children, and uh, one of the things that it does is it affects these two things, the working model of self and the working model of the world. If you don't know that you have a working model of the self that says that you're not capable of getting your needs met, you still go about the world as if that's true for you. And if you have the view that the world won't help you, you still go about uh, the world as if that's true. Now, people who have a secure attachment, they may not be aware either that they think of themselves as capable of getting their needs met and that the world will meet their needs, but they do go about 
exploring the world in that way. In one sense, what we're describing is in view, so in a a conventional meditation way, exploring the view of the self in the world. Mm -hmm. If you don't think the opportunity is there for you, you often don't even see that it's there, even if it's being offered to you. When you refer to opportunities, what do you mean? Well, somebody likes you or you have a work opportunity. Um, I mostly think of uh, life as this pursuit of love and of work or Work is a term of meaning, maybe a better term. You want to pursue and engage in activity which actually has meaning to you, and you want to do it in a community of people who love you and will support you. And if you can do that, it doesn't really matter what it is you're doing as long as you found meaning in what you do, and also that the people are there to share that exploration with you. In attachment, we would call that attachment in the relationships and exploration. Um, and then, depending on the conditioning you had, uh, either you're you're good at relationships and good at exploring, or some combination of that. For an example, uh, as a, a dismissing adult, uh, this would be um, sort of in the narcissistic end of. Uh, we're a very psychologically oriented society in that way, so we often use the Masterson model of. Uh, narcissism at one end and borderline at the other. Um, Different in attachment. It's the dismissing view is that I don't really need anybody. Um, And the internal sense is I'm I'm great. I'm fantastic. Um, I should have whatever I want. And uh, with other people, the view is, you know, they're they're not really up to my level of fantasticness, so I'm entitled to just take from them whatever I want. And so you see in in those kinds of relationships, it's one-directional. You give to me, and I don't reciprocate. In a preoccupied adult, which would be an anxious, ambivalent child, the caregiving was so erratic that the child could never rely on the caregiver. This is different, say, from the dismissing adult whose childhood was one of uh, constant neglect. Nobody ever came, and so they didn't actually ever develop the capacity to rely on anybody. And they explore, um, uh, but they never come back and share their exploration with anybody because nobody was interested. And so they tend to explore things that have social standing, social meaning, rather than things that may be authentically uh, meaningful to them. How does meditation help with attachment issues? Well, first you need to be able to see what it is that's happening, and then you need to be able to move in a direction that's more secure. Um, Most of this is going to be in seeing the mind states, what you do, what you think, how that affects how you view things. And then also there's a big piece around emotional regulation. Um, Attachment, uh, the attachment mechanism regulates the uh, um, fear of abandonment or fear of being harmed physically. And so it's an activating strategy which makes you seek proximity to somebody who will protect you. Mm. So it can either, it turns on and it it turns off. In a a secure person, it turns on and then you get proximity and then it turns off. Uh, So that's a pretty functional thing. In a dismissing person, it just turns off. So whenever they feel a need for somebody else, they turn off their attachment mechanism so they're not seeking proximity, they're not seeking closeness. In a preoccupied adult, for for instance, it hyperactivates, so they're constantly seeking proximity, constantly seeking closeness. And where were you? Were you dismissive, preoccupied? I was, uh, it's called unresolved, cannot classify, uh, uh, extremely preoccupied and extremely dismissing at the same time. Like uh, off the charts. Well, yeah, just sort of at that end of the needle's all the way over. Yeah. Right. Um, well, how did that? How did that manifest itself? I was highly dissociative, so you know dissociation. Yeah, you're just not there. You're yeah. off in greener pastures in your own mind, zooming in and out of the present moment. Uh, the 
colloquial term for uh, cannot classify as fearful avoidant. So I'm this, I was the sweetest guy around, but I was completely unreliable. Fearful avoidant people need to withdraw to emotionally regulate. Uh, and so they withdraw if something happens. If there's a conflict in the relationship, they will withdraw from the relationship and stay withdrawn until they've figured out the perfect thing to do to come back into the relationship because they're afraid that if they make a mistake, you'll kill them. And I'm not really kidding about that. The fear is at that level. But you can imagine a, a child with a depressed, violent uh, mother who, if they make the wrong move, uh, she goes off into a rage, which is completely terrifying. And so you're hyper-sensitive uh, to what you have to do, and you have to do it right, or anything could happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you carry that into your adult life, of course, the likelihood that that's going to happen is very small, but it still feels like that. That's still what the view is. And so you engage in... Um, figuring out the perfect response. And if it takes you three months to figure out the perfect response, you've been gone for three months, and then you just show up and present the solution that you've come up with. The main harm to relationships is not that you have have come up with the right thing or the wrong thing. It's that you're not reliable in showing up for people. And so it's the lack of reliability, really, that damages the relationships. People are happy to have you around, but they don't count on you. And you can't be in intimate, supportive relationships if people won't rely on you. It's a kind of mutual exchange. If you look at what a mutual relationship is based on, really, it's the ground floor of it is reliability, that you can really count on somebody to show up for you when you need them. Then all you have to do is trade them that, that you'll show up for them reliably when they need it. That's the mutuality piece. And that creates a felt sense of safety in relationship. If you have that felt sense of safety in relationships, you'll be willing to attune to them. So attunement is this process of connecting empathetically. Um, and also you'll be able to reveal yourself authentically to them. If you don't trust somebody else, you tend to withhold an authentic expression of yourself. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing uh, to let somebody see you, then nobody sees you and you feel unseen, which is a, not a great place to be. If you attune to somebody um, and then uh, the empathetic uh, connection deepens, they can actually soothe you or co-regulate you emotionally. And then what comes from that basis is a felt sense of delight uh, in seeing the other person. This is a model that was developed by Dan Brown up at Harvard, do you know what it's like to have somebody see you and just be delighted that, that you're there, that you, you're who you are without needing to do anything? I had really good parents. I'm glad. Yeah. So you know what that is. I do, yeah. But uh, then imagine a child who never had that. Uh, I, I can. It's wrenching. Yeah. So I uh, kind of derailed you. I had asked you a question about what meditation, how meditation is helpful for people with attachment disorders, and you were starting to answer it, and then I asked you another question okay. about how it showed up for you. So I apologize for that. Back to that, you said the first thing, that, the way in which meditation is helpful, and this sounds completely intuitive and true to me, is just to be able to see clearly what's going on. Right. But what then how, once you see things clearly, uh, how is meditation useful? Well, you want to be, in seeing things clearly, move... Uh, your attention into a more secure framework uh, of operating in relationships. Um, a great deal of that is going to be uh, emotional regulation. I think that the goal of meditation in the long game is going to be classical enlightenment. But there's a lot of things that you have to do along the way so that you're capable of going into that Classical territory. enlightenment, what does that mean? Well, in a Theravada sense, it's... Theravada uh, being old-school Buddhism. Yeah, old-school Buddhism. I'm a Theravada teacher, so that's what, kind of what I do. Um, that you see through the nature of self that it's ephemeral and not substantial, that you see that everything arises and passes, that nothing lasts, that as a human being, uh, we're stuck in a body which will grow old, get sick, and die, that we have to de deal with uh, getting things we want and losing them, 
that we have to deal with not getting what we want. We have to deal with putting up what we don't want, putting up with what we don't want. And then also that subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that we would have it if we were actually in charge of anything, which is kind of a double-edged sword. It's not what we want, and we're not really in charge of anything. If you could see into that, it would change this uh, perspective that you have, and you would move from an identification with the consciousness of experience into awareness. And then you would, this figure ground reversal would put you into awareness where there's no suffering in that sense. So it's you're not so stuck in the ups and downs and contents of your concerns, and you're actually just the person, the one who is aware of all of this coming and going yes. on the stage of your own consciousness. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so that would be classical enlightenment. So you're saying that's the long con. That's the long game. Yeah. <laughs> the short game then is how do you get your life uh, to organized in such a way that, that it can support you in, in getting to that? And often what we find is uh, it's relational and also work-wise or exploration-wise. Many of us spend most of our life engaged in activities that don't really have meaning to us. Um, and depending on where that's a problem, um, not knowing what is meaningful, for instance, is one, and not being able to organize your life around spending most of the most of the time and energy that you have engaged in an activity that's meaningful is a problem for a lot of people. And so you begin to examine how are you organizing your life and living your life and then moving in the direction of that. A lot of that comes from the practice of meditation in being able to see these uh, fluctuations of self come and go and fluctuations of desire come and go or aversion come and go. And then what we notice is that uh, in order to change a lot of these things, uh, because they're strategies that we use to emotionally regulate ourselves, we need to provide an alternative emotional regulation strategy because uh, the body-mind will emotionally regulate itself with the strategies that you have. Um, you don't have agency over that. What you have agency over is the strategies that the body-mind uses, and you have to learn them. It's like anything else. In the beginning, it's effortful, it's conscious, it's uh, this repetition of practice, but once they become automatic, then the body-mind just does them. And meditation, which is this practice of repetition and uh, paying attention and, and uh, training the mind, uh, allows you to develop these alternative um, skills that then take over for the ones that aren't as useful. So all these strategies that you use, like when you have a fight with somebody, you retreat to your corner and... and um, uh, don't come back until you could, until you're confident that they won't kill you. All the stuff that you described that you were doing because of the the difficult relationship you had with your mother. One first step is see it clearly, and second step is to be able to develop healthier strategies. Right. So, if we use that as an example, um, what I uh, suggest that people do is they pay attention to the normal window of communication, which will be different with each person. Normal window of communication. Well, some, you know, you communicate to somebody and they can communicate right away back, but it's too soon. Or they they can c communicate back too late. So um, another way to put that is when you communicate to somebody that you're relying on in a relationship, how long is too long before you begin to worry that something's wrong? And how short is too short that you're irritated that you have to attend to it again? Mm -hmm. That would That would be the window between those two points would be the window of communication. That if you drop a communication in there, the other person just accepts it and receives it. In the fearful avoidant, the fearful avoidant problem is that you don't respond in the window of communication, and so the fix is to respond. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you respond because that's the thing that makes you reliable. You can always fix bad communication. You can't fix an unreliableness in the relationship. Secure people have a view of the world as the, uh, as people who will meet their needs and they have a view of themselves as capable. They don't do unreliable because it doesn't even occur to them to, to consider it. Uh, so, uh, so, so secure people are most often relationships with other secure people because that's the dynamic. 
Dismissing people uh, don't do mutual, uh, and so they're most often in relationships with preoccupied people who are willing to abandon their exploration for proximity. And uh, as long as they can be close to the uh, dismissing person who never likes to be alone, they're fine, but they don't get to explore because it's all about the dismissing person. And the fearful avoidant person is almost never in relationship with a secure person because they're so unreliable. The dismissing person doesn't care whether they come and go as long as they show <laughs> right. up. They have juice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they're never in relationships or not in long relationships with the preoccupied people because they need to withdraw for uh, emotional regulation. And the preoccupied person needs proximity for emotional regulation. So you can begin to describe these views and people can begin to identify them and see how they function. And then uh, in, in order, for instance, for a fearful avoidant person to show up in the window of opportunity, they have to be able to regulate the fear mind that is keeping them from doing it. And so you apply a meditation technique to the fear experience well enough that you can make the action or the gesture to communicate. And then you've, in that sense, resolved that difficulty in the relationship. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So let me loop back to the very first question I asked you that sent us on this this very interesting um, down this very interesting path. The first question I asked was why, how, and why did you start meditating? And you said it was pain and uh, and distress. Um, what, how old were you? What was going on in your life? Um, and then what happened subsequently? Um, well, I want. I, I'm a pro, uh, my adolescence was in the sixties. And so the first big uh, understanding of meditation was transcendental meditation. Yes. yes. And uh, the White Album, you know, the Beatles. I love that album. <laughs> Dear Prudence, one of my favorite songs. Maybe my favorite song of all time. Play it to my son all the time. Uh, so uh, 
I, I was I was deeply resentful of the four hundred dollars that they wanted for the mantra, and so I I went I grew up in Evanston, Illinois. I went to Northwestern and I um, talked uh, somebody into giving me their mantra, and so I practiced with that for a while. Um, it was a good concentration meditation, worked pretty good. And then I I you know I was a vagabond hitching around Europe for a year or so, and I came across Ramdas. Uh, be Here Now was a book that he wrote. Ram Dass, just to, for the uninitiated, born Richard Alpert. Yes. Boston, Massachusetts, and then that area. Jewish guy uh, went to Harvard or went to fancy schools and then um, got in trouble as a professor at Harvard where he gave acid to the students as part of some sort of test or something. He was like Timothy, in Leary. The Timothy Leary yeah. crowd, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, and then went on, went to India, became Baba Ram Dass, right. and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, so. Well, I, that actually worked really well for me. And then uh, I uh, was in New York in the 80s during the AIDS uh, period. Um, Where you were an artist. I was, yeah. Very hard, a very hard period that, uh, you know, every couple of months going to a funeral of wow. somebody who had been a dear friend mm -hmm. and a whole generation blighted, really. And then the, the terrible response from uh, the Reagan administration. Um so I then started to practice more seriously. It had been kind of dilettante up until then. Also uh, got sober, uh, so I, I was a hard hard drinker, uh, in, just in line with my family system of emotional regulation. You came by it honestly. Yeah, indeed. Um, so taking away the use of drugs and alcohol as a primary means of emotional regulation, I needed to uh, develop some alternative to that. And meditation seemed to be really excellent at that. Uh, turns out it really is excellent as an emotional regulation strategy. So if you have afflictive strategies and you want to stop using them, you, you can't just stop using them. You have to stop and replace. And meditation was great for that. Um, I was mostly doing uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, so that would be um, in the Tibetan school. So this, you went from TM to uh, to Baba Ramdas to Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan teacher who moved to to the West and started right. teaching people. Um, what can I tell you? I'm a seeker. <laughs> no judgment here, man. Just trying to make sure I got the chronology straight. Um. So then when I moved to L.A. in 92, I did some Vipassana introductory classes. I really liked Vipassana. It was a great thing. And uh, I was a Dharma orphan for years because my relational problems made it impossible to have a relationship with a meditation teacher, too, um, until I found Shinzen Young, who has been my teacher for 20 years. Previous guest on this podcast, awesome guest. Everybody should go back and listen to that one. He's That guy is awesome. Yeah. And actually, one of Shinzen's other students— a guy named Jeff Warren, who's uh -huh. based out of Toronto. He and I just wrote a book together. So I'm quite familiar with Shinzen, big fan. Yeah, awesome. So um, one of the things of, of about having a crappy childhood is that I have a, a kindness bar, which is really high. I mean, uh, in order for me to be willing to be in a close relationship with you, you have to be somebody of extraordinary kindness. And um, that was the problem with most of the meditation teachers I encountered. They weren't kind enough for me. But Shinzen was, and that that uh, opened up a whole kind of process of really being able to go into these mind states and the, the conditioning, then to see it clearly, and then in seeing it clearly, recognize what I needed to do in order to shift it uh, into uh, a more secure way of being in the world. Um, and then also, uh, he's an enlightenment teacher. So the first time I sat with him, he said, I expect all of you to become enlightened in this lifetime, which I really, uh, was encouraging, uh, found encouraging because the first class I went to, uh, there was a moment where we all went around and said, why did you come here? And I, um, said, I came here because I wanted to be enlightened, and everyone laughed, but it wasn't a good <laughs> laugh, you know? It was like an uncomfortable <laughs> laugh, yeah. But you weren't kidding. No, 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 I wasn't kidding at all. So has he gotten you there? I think that my practice actually has transformed my life entirely, uh, so... Um, Is that, I mean, my practice has transformed my life, I don't know about entirely, but I wouldn't call myself enlightened. Okay. 
Um, you know, it's a kind of dicey thing, uh, that line of conversation. Yes, that's why uh, I'm, that's why I'm <laughs> I would, I would, uh, well, way, explain why it's dicey. Um, because we're a competitive culture and uh, different traditions regard the conversation of your attainments differently. For instance, uh, in a Tibetan practice, nobody, even the most enlightened people will tell you what attainments they've met because it's considered so rude. Meditative attainments, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, in fact, Tibetans will often say, oh, I'm no, 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 I'm a terrible meditator, yeah, even totally. though it's like in the, in those in the know, you know, they're super enlightened. Right. Um, uh, culturally in the West, um, and maybe this is just a good thing to know, what is enlightenment? What do you think enlightenment is? Um, and uh, if you told me what you thought enlightenment was, I could tell you whether that was what I have. Um, but if I say to you, yes, I'm enlightened, uh, without defining that right. very specifically, who knows what we're actually talking about? Well, classically in Buddhism, it's the uprooting of greed, hatred, and desire. Um, I would say that... Uh, no, I haven't completely uprooted any of those. Uh, but if you look at the four path model of Theravada Buddhism, uh, that's arahatship, which yes. is this fully enlightened. Can I just jump in for a second, just yeah. to explain that? Because okay. so the four path model of 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 enlightenment, just for those who haven't studied this thing, is basically, and I'm going to put it in simply. There are four stages on the way to what's known as full uh, enlightenment right. or arahatship. Right. Um, and uh, each step along the way, you gradually erode uh, the hold with which greed, hatred, and delusion uh, has over you. You gradually erode the hold that these defilements have over you. Right. Um, so anyway, back to you. <laughs> um, I would think so. Uh, um, so um, not our hot. My teacher is a guy named Joseph Goldstein. I'm sure you've heard that name. And a yeah. great, amazing teacher. He often says somewhere between the first and the fourth. You know, that would work for me. Yes, because and I and the reason why you, the reason for your reticence is I want to affirm there's there's a good reason for this. I when I first started asking people about enlightenment and they would get really cagey. I thought, what is this? this is like some weird mafia omerta <laughs> thing? I didn't get it. It's what you said earlier. We live in a competitive culture and if you start saying too much about where you are in this model, which by the way is just one model of enlightenment, um, then people start measuring where they are against you and it gets into a whole weird competitive thing. So better in some ways to be a little bit cagey. Right. Um, but it's what I think that it's important for you to do is to understand what it is and then look at the person and see if they actually manifest that. That would be the better way to do it because, uh, you know, you can say anything. Yeah. Are you yeah. actually, so for, from a person, from a personal point of view, learn what it is that enlightenment is and then see if you recognize those characteristics in the person that, that, that uh, uh, you're going to work with so that you know where they're actually at. Um, I think it's very well said that, that that you just brought it down to the most useful level right. possible. So you've had such an interesting life and a lot of which uh, we won't be able to get to. You're a, 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 an artist. You just you have an op in fact, the reason why you're in New York right now is because you've had this uh, your opening at MoMA. Club 57 show at MoMA. And you mentioned before that you were a doorman, a lot of the big, uh, um, I, I think this is probably pre-sobriety, uh, a doorman, a lot of the big clubs here in New York. Well, actually, it was my sobriety job. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. that, that seems like, in terms of people, places, and things, maybe not the best decision. <laughs> Doormen are outside. Yeah, where right. There's no drinking. Yeah, but you're, you're getting you're getting the waft, and you're constantly witnessing the horror of it. Oh, fair so enough. it's very reinforcing. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but well, I said all that to get me to the question I wanted to ask, which is, what do you do now? What, what, what are you? I, I'm a full time meditation teacher, and I still make art, so that's what I do. I live in Los Angeles. We have uh, a group called Meta Group, uh, and it's going. We're calling it a meditation and psychotherapy center. Uh, we um, are focusing heavily on uh, attachment. For instance, attachment, I think, attachment disturbance is the basis of addiction. 
And so we have a model for addiction. Uh, it's, attachment disturbance is the basis of personality disorders. So we're going to be working with people with personality disorder. And uh, we do a kind of psychoeducation about what attachment is and what meditation is and how they can work together. And then we train people to do meditation techniques that will be supportive in uh, transforming their their uh, insecure attachment more towards secure attachment. Um, and so that's basically what I do. What about people who had great parents and healthy attachment and are still jerks? I'd explain that. Because um, attachment isn't the whole game. Okay. I was referring to myself. <laughs> You'd have to convince me of that. No, no, I'm talking uh, the old version. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm still, I still retain the capacity to be a jerk, but it was yes, the old version. Yes, I think that we all should have that as a way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. um, spontaneity, freedom. Um, the um, So you have the early attachment experience, really, which winds up at about three years old by the time Actually, I was at uh, talking to Dan Brown, and he said that the, they have a new study that shows that the first installation of the working model of self happens between two and five months. Um, but by the time you're three years old, it's pretty well fixed, and it can stay that way the whole of your life if you don't do something to change it or some adverse circumstance doesn't affect it. What happens next is we begin uh, in... As soon as your parents turn you loose into, say, preschool or school, you begin the operation of negotiating your own personal relationships. And depending on how that history goes, that also affects greatly the 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 experience of, of somebody. If you if you like somebody and they like you back, and and that consistently happens, it creates a different kind of person than if you like somebody and they don't like you, and that happens. Or it's a mix that sometimes you can get somebody and sometimes you can't. A lot of that is cultural and the way that you look and your socioeconomic stuff that you don't have any choice about, really. And then in puberty, there's another one of these cycles that happen when we add that uh, exploration around sex. Are you? Um, what's your sexual orientation? What's your gender? Um, are you able to attract and, and be in relationship with the people that are attractive to you or are you not? And that also can have a great impact. If you're consistently going for people that you can't have, it creates a sense of deprivation. Uh, if you easily find the people that you want and you're able to have relationships with them, those are the, the, the main three uh, things that affect that uh, attachment cycle. Uh, can you have too healthy an attachment? Like I have a kid at home who's about to turn three. He's our only son, and uh, I, you know he not only he does not have any problem getting his needs met because right. whenever he asks for something, like there's a swarm of people, you know, trying Which to help is him. Totally awesome. Right? Yeah, right. But could but it could could couldn't that go pear shaped in some way? Well, uh, I think the term in uh, contemporary society is a helicopter parent. Yes. Um, yes. We try not to do that, but yeah. he gets his needs met. Um, yeah, so you want to develop in the kid the idea that if he has a need and he expresses it, that somebody will help him uh, get the need met. That creates a great sense of security. Um, you want to encourage them to explore what's meaningful to them, and you want to be delighted by their experience of them exploring. So it's these two things. They, they can go off and explore at the edge of their capacity to explore, and they, they know 100% that you're there when they come back from that. That's called, I believe, uh, I've, I've read a lot of books by my friend Dr. Mark Epstein, who <laughs> calls it ego coverage, I think is the term, something like they can go off and exploring knowing that you're there kind right. of watching. Right, yeah. If, um, if you don't think anybody will be there, when you get back, you go off and explore, but you don't come back. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you're worried whether they'll be there, you don't go explore. Uh, so in, you, what you want to try and do is teach your child to find meaning in the activities that they pursue and that the meaning should be their own. It's interesting you to use the term delight because as a parent, that is, I would say, the primary 
emotion that I feel just, you know, I can just gazing at him. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome for me. I don't know if he likes it, but uh, I I think he thinks I'm annoying. um, Which is totally fine as long as it doesn't affect the delight that you're giving him. No, no, no. No, Sometimes it's bad for my ego, but whatever. Well, yes. Um, uh, Kids, um, some kids don't have that. They have conditional delight. Yeah, I know. So, for instance, somebody who grows up to be a dismissing person, it's very likely that the only delight that they could get was when they uh, de- they delighted in their parent mm. or they idealized their parent. Mm. So they know that they're getting bad care, and the only way they can get any response at all from their caregivers is by presenting an ideal view of the, the care that they're getting. So you can imagine the schism yeah. that that creates in them. Uh, people who uh, do grow up to be uh, preoccupied adults have had no experience at any time of delight. They're never delighted in because the way that they get connection is by bringing up problems. Um, so they scan for what's difficult and then they bring it up to you in a sort of angry way so that you'll fix it. But it has a tendency to short-circuit the delight that they would experience from someone else. And fearful avoidant uh, adults are too afraid to be seen, so they never present themselves openly, and so nobody can see them to delight in them. And so how are you now after all these years of meditation, and how are your relationships, and are you getting the delight you need? I have wonderful, loving relationships, and uh, I'm, I'm actually in secure territory now in terms of that. Uh, I would say secure with uh, slightly preoccupied features is where I'm currently at. So you kind of had to do some reparenting, self-parenting. It is uh, a change of view is maybe a better way to put it. Um, You need to see that actually you can get your needs met. And the way to do that is by uh, telling people what your needs are. (laughs) Surprise. Right. Uh, if you're fearful avoidant, you would never tell somebody what, mm-hmm. what you need because you're afraid that if you tell them, they'll kill you. How often are you going to tell anybody what you need from them if you think that the response is that they'll kill you? Never. You have to be willing to reveal yourself authentically, which is, I like to call it the earthquake and the tsunami. If you're in insecure attachment and you authentically reveal yourself, you're immediately afraid that you'll be abandoned. And if you can hold on to that abandonment terror, regulate that well enough, it will dissolve and you'll hit be hit by this tsunami of terrible sadness. And then you're just crushed by this terrible sadness. If you can hold on through the terrible abandonment and through the terrible sadness, well, I like to call it the terrible dread, the terrible dread and the terrible sadness, then you come into a place of security. We might think that, oh, I'm going to be authentic now and it's going to solve all my problems, but actually you feel much worse doing it in the beginning. Uh, And then you have to chip away at all of the conditioning and then then gradually be able to reclaim your authenticity. Because if if you move toward authenticity and you have this terrible spike of abandonment terror, the inauthentic thing that you could do arises in the mind. And if you choose it, it immediately relieves the abandonment terror. But then in a little while, you're angry that you couldn't be authentic. And then anger is the expression that Mm. you make to the person in the relationship. So uh, it is very effortful to reclaim your authenticity. Now, secure people don't understand this and they give no credence for it because they haven't learned how to be an authentic because they never had a use for it. They've always been authentic. It's always gotten them what they wanted. And so that seems obviously the best way to do it, which is obviously the best way to do it, except that if you grew up in an environment where uh, your authentic expression was in some way punished or uh, the demand was that you be someone else, children will always try their best to become the thing that the parent wants, even if it's a total abandonment of their authenticity Mm -hmm. because they can't survive without them. Thank you for helping me understand it. Two last questions. Uh, these are quickie. Uh, well, maybe not. We'll see. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, I don't know. Fair enough. Uh, for people who want to learn more about you 
and oh. your group, where could they go? I have a website called metagroup.org. So they just have to go on there. Pretty much everything is up there. Thank you very much for doing yeah. this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Nicely done. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.